The Rockets have eaten the series. The Celtics are blowing out the Cavs. The draft is set. The scout, an NBA scout, comes on the show to give us his expertise and his insight. He just does it anonymously. I'm David Locke. I'm the host of today's edition of Locked on NBA. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Well, the scout is with us, hired by an NBA team, comes on our show anonymously. We love it. Uh, We are recording this on Wednesday night with the Rockets and the Warriors having just completed. So, scout, let's start there. What jumped out to you is different in game two? Uh, The aggression that Houston played with uh, and the lack of aggression that Golden State played with. I think we've seen it through the years that there's uh, there's times when they're motivated and times when they're not, and when they're not especially motivated or sharp and they turn the ball over, they can look pretty average. And uh, not tonight. Houston just played as a group. They played a lot better than they did the other night. Um, obviously, Harden played great the other night, but uh, as a group tonight, they were all engaged and on both ends of the floor. When you look back at game one, the Rockets offense actually had, an, like, as much as everyone's killing them for isolation and all these other things, their offensive rating was a 108. That, that'll that win you most ball games. Their problem was that their defensive rating was a 120. They didn't get any stops. What, what was, was there anything differently that they did defensively that slowed down the Warriors that's maybe sustainable toward game number three and four of this series? I think the biggest thing, and I don't know what the numbers would be, but it felt like they contested a lot more tonight. Um, they were just closer, and I think D'Antoni even said it during the broadcast, is, is they felt them tonight. I think there was a, a concerted effort to make sure that they were physical without being dirty, but uh, there wasn't a lot of freebies tonight. I mean, to the same point, by the way, the Rockets' offensive rating tonight was a 127.3. That is not sustainable. I'm pretty certain it's the worst, one of the two or three worst defensive performances of the year by the Warriors. The thing that jumped out to me was the number of corner threes. They got, I think, 13 corner threes in that game. The Warriors only allowed more than that three times all season long. Uh, the Warriors are one of the best teams in the league at taking away the corner three. What allowed them to get looks that the Warriors don't usually give up? I think people are conscious of Capella's roles. Uh, they don't want him to to get an easy two or three if he makes a free throw and he gets fouled on a late, a late uh, tag. Um, so I think there's you know, there's enough of that, and there's enough worry about Harden's penetration as well. So, you know, they are trying to figure out a way to be able to contest a little bit, but to still take away the the layups at the rim tonight. And so, I think that created some issues. The so kill- somebody's got the tag guy's got to be the corner man most of the time. And so, when Utah played. The Rockets in the series before, what the 
what the Jazz did is they just had Gobert basically kind of def- you run Harden or Paul off the three point line. Gobert's dropping down, and you're holding on those three point shooters. And it can- and the Rockets didn't get the same shots they usually got, but they were able to beat them in the mid roll. Is the lack of a rim protector mean that the Warriors cannot do the same thing? Um, the lack of them playing a rim protector, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, I think that's an issue. Because um, again, Capella is that guy that rolls consistently, and so I think, I think you have to match up with them unless you're making every shot. I mean, you have to, you have to do something to alleviate that, and you got to play someone that can help in the paint there and stay with him. And all you have to do is is guard him for 15 feet. Like he's not going to shoot beyond that role and he's not a half roll guy. And so, you know, you can, I think you got to play a, a big man for a little while in there. Uh, just a note, by the way, the defensive performance by the Warriors tonight of a defensive rating of 127 was their 92nd worst performance of the season. Um, I last time I checked, they've only played five games in the first round, five in the second. Um, so that would make that they this was their ninety fourth game of the season, and that was their. I'm talking to a CPA. <laughs> numbers. So if you see something that's that much of an outlier, is your instinct to say? That's just an outlier, or that the Rockets really, in some way, busted the Warriors, and it lasts beyond. Um, I think Coach D'Antoni said Game One was an outlier for them, so he didn't. They didn't really do much different tonight. The energy level changed, but schemes didn't really change. So I think in both cases. They'll go back to being who they are, and maybe things will level out in game three, and both teams will play like themselves, and it'll be a close game and a fun one. But I don't think when you have an outlier like that, I don't think that you're going to change much schematically with either team as many games as they've won. I think you just, you're going into the next game with more concerted effort to do what you do a little bit harder. Uh, speaking of scheme changes, I was talking to Igor Kokoshkov, who's now the head coach of the Phoenix Suns, before the playoffs started. He made a comment to me that he really felt as though offensive schemes can change in a playoff, but defense is a five-man game of seven months of habit, and you start changing your defensive schemes too dramatically in the playoffs, you won't be able to execute defensively. Do you see the same thing he's talking about there? think if you watched the Cleveland Cavaliers last night, he would seem pretty uh, prescient because uh, that seemed to be the way they were. I mean, Boston was just getting layups, and um, I think that was different from what Cleveland's been based on and the way Ty Lue was taught and brought up and has coached all the time. So I think that's a pretty uh, prescient statement by the new head coach of the Suns. Back to the Warriors. We'll get to that series in a second. Back to the Warriors and Rockets. When I 
having just finished playing the Rockets and having prepped for them, then kind of looked into the series. The thing that I thought was the Achilles heel to the Rockets would be their transition defense. They're 23rd in the league in transition defense. They're second best defensively after a make. They're 11th best after a miss, and they're 17th best after a turnover, and then 23rd in transition. But the Warriors only get seven fast break points tonight. Can a team become a good transition defense when they have to be? Um, I think it's because of the way the Warriors play. It almost feels like it can be simpler to play transition defense because all you have to do is you're running to the three-point line. You don't have to worry about the basket much. You don't have to – there's not a lot of layup shot by the – Warriors at this stage, so um, it it's easier if you're running 45 feet back from three-point line to three-point line versus the 65 feet to get back and protect the rim and worry about the rim and worry about a post player and uh, roller in the drags. And so um, I think there's an easier efficiency there. I mean, obviously, you're spread out on the floor, and so that's more difficult, and you have to find guys and test guys and give quality closeouts, but um, you don't have to get back as far. So I think there's some some to that. The one thing that I thought the Rockets might be able to do in this series, uh, just looking at some second-spectrum data, was that the Warriors – run the most off-ball screens in the league because they're not a pick-and-roll team. They are the best in the league at it, and the Rockets are the number one team in the league at defending off-ball screens and also at not letting them happen. I think that's because of their switching. You can tell me if I'm right on that. It means to me that if they don't get in transition, the game we saw out of Clay Thompson tonight where he's 3 of 11, he's, he's not much of an impact, that becomes Clay Thompson because he is – absolutely dependent on those off-ball screens to get his game going? Um, I was a person who witnessed Clay Thompson scoring 37 points in a quarter. <laughs> and I will venture to say that Clay Thompson is really good coming off screens, but he's really good in transition shooting threes. And um, I think that's another statistic that'll go back to the mean next game and um i think he's i think he'll be fine he makes it very difficult because you have to find him in transition he has such quick release and you know uh i'd bet on him on, i'd bet on him on that in that 37 point quarter he had what about three dribbles uh it was something close to that <laughs> uh What's your expectation for the rest of this series? Uh, like I said, I think the games will be closer from here on out. I think um, I think it'll be a good one that'll go to six games and uh, the hottest shooting team will win. Just m- make I think or- the league would love it to be seven games, I'm sure. But make or miss league on this one, or do you think the Warriors just have too much firepower? I think it's make or miss with these two teams. 
Interesting. He's the scout with us here on Locked On NBA Podcast. Remember, you can get all your Locked On Podcast Network podcasts at LockedOnSports.com. Which team averages more free throw attempts per game? In the playoffs? Sure or you have that up in, top here. in the playoffs or in the regular season? It's a larger sample size regular season, so I'm going with that. Uh, give me one second. I'll I'd venture to say it's the Rockets. Uh, this season, Based on James Harden, especially. Uh, I think you would probably be right. I mean, James Harden usually takes more free throw attempts. He took 727 free throw attempts by himself, which I think is more than any player in the league by over 100. The Rockets took the third most amount of free throws this year at 25.1, and the Warriors took about the eighth fewest at 20.3. So what's your thought on the impact on that? Well, I think that um, when you're at the free throw line, it allows you to get back on defense easier, number one. Number two, um, it's easier to make free throws than it is to make threes all the time. So I like the fact, going back to what Coach Smith used to say at Carolina, and the fact that you know we want to get to the line and that allows us to set up a defense and it allows us to shoot unguarded shots at the free throw line and uh, it keeps the pace to our liking and we're not as dependent on the outside shot. So I like teams that get to the free throw line if if all things are equal. I understand the Warriors weren't as engaged this year, but I, I think it's interesting that the Rockets were a better basically half-court defense than the Warriors were this year. Like I don't think most people would buy, would buy that. I think the big man helps in that part of it. All right, turning it to the uh, Celtics and the Cavaliers, uh, before I give my thought, what jumped out to you about what Boston's done to Cleveland in the first two? What? Because I'm the ultimate, I'm the ultimate Cleveland Cavalier hater. So um, I think the thing that jumped out was the uh, physical play. I think the depth of quality of players stood out. And I think the lack of supporting help for the Cavs really stood out. I think, you know, Boston, there was some, I don't think Terry Rozier played great either game, you know, but Tatum played really good the first game. He played solid last game. Like Al Horford, it's been a team effort. And so it's been a team effort and you took the very best from LeBron and they walked him down through the second half of the game and um, the collective hole out, outweighed the uh, the lack of collective hole for the Cavs. It, where, in what ways is Al Horford better than people realize? Um, I liked when Van Gundy pointed out the other night that, um, you know, he... Took away a post up on defense. He got out and contested a shot. He ran to the other end. He got, I think he got an offensive rebound, kept it alive, and then ended up in a three. Like he impacted the game basically in every way he could. Um, I think he's another one of those guys that the, 
the collective, everything that he does, um, he does every little thing and, and you put it all together. I'm amazed each time he makes a three point shot or any, any shot with this awkward release. Um, but he's efficient. He makes them, um, he's in the right places defensively. He's a talker defensively. He rebounds the ball, uh, really good at kicking it out. And I think that's one of the things that they've seems to made an emphasis on is, uh, getting the defensive rebounding. The first pass is to half court. And then all of a sudden it's Tatum and Brown attacking. Uh, the Cavs are a little bit older, a little bit tireder, it looks like. The guard defense from George Hill and J.R. Smith, I, I, I thought was just abysmal. And then when I looked and realized that their next two options or three options are Jordan Clarkson, Rodney Hood, and Kyle Korver, oh, dear God. Like, there at some they, point, they there's a reason. For those guys. That's, there's a reason you're 29th in the league against the pick and roll and 29th in the league defensively. Yes. Do you Even s- Tristan Thompson inserted into the lineup couldn't help that. Do you see anything that changes the Boston-Cleveland series? Uh, Cleveland home court. Guys are going to shoot better. George Hill play his one good game in the series probably since he's playing on home court. LeBron will pump him up. Um, but I think I think the youth and the collectiveness of Boston is very apparent and I think it, their defense will travel. So I, I, I might get Cleveland a game one of the two games but um I think wrapping it up in Boston. How good are Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum? They're young. They're athletic. Um, neither one has any fear. I feel like Jalen Brown is just out hooping. Like he, there's a lot of times where he's uh, just attacking. He's playing free, playing hard defensively. Um, His shot is not as consistent maybe as Tatum's from the perimeter, but when he's a better cutter and Tatum's Tatum has surprised me as uh, I think he went to the right team, which is a team full of uh, collectively tough guys who has helped him uh, be more aggressive, but he just shot the ball so well. And he's neither one are afraid. Like they're just they're just out there playing and playing with a lot of confidence. When you watch Brad Stevens, what jumps out to you as a coach of what his impact is? I believe his uh, confident calmness helps them when uh, things are going bad and when it's going good. Um, That confident calmness helps them feel like, hey, we're still in the game. 
if it's a if they're behind by 13 or 14 and LeBron shot 21, made 21 points in the first quarter. If they're playing well, it's the confident calmness that he has that uh, we just got to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, you know, continue to do this, continue to do that. I think his even keelness uh, helps, especially with uh, the young, energetic guys that are going 100 miles an hour sometimes. I think that that helps them, uh, gives them confidence in him and gives them confidence in themselves. Mark Jackson went out of his way on the broadcast the other night to make sure that he talked about how offended he was by the narrative that Brad Stevens was this superior coach to Tyrone Lue. Any truth to what Mark Jackson was saying? Um, yes, I think Ty Lue has proven when he won a championship that he's a pretty good coach. I think he's a guy who's made adjustments. I think... Um, Right now, like the two teams are, it was the old story they talked about. Bum Phillips was about the best coaches. He could take urine and beat his in, and he could take his in and beat urine. Like a good coach could, you could put them on either side. I think if you put Ty Lue with the Celtics, they have the same opportunity to be good. Um, I think if you put uh, Brad Stevens with the Cavs. I don't know that that he can make up for the fact that they have slow wings that can't get out and guard anymore. They got guys that uh, are asleep defensively and giving up layups. I don't. I don't think even Brad Stevens or Quinn Snyder can fix that. Uh, we'll talk Brad Stevens, Quinn Snyder, and awards. We'll talk draft coming up with the scout here on Locked On Podcast Network on Locked On NBA. Make sure you subscribe to your favorite NBA team's Locked On Podcast. They're available for you all on iTunes or whatever your podcast, podcast catcher is. Uh, let's run through the awards. They, the NBA announced their finalists. Brad Stevens, Dwayne Casey, Quinn Snyder, Coach of the Year, Scout. Um, I'm wondering why Eric Spolstra and Alvin Gentry aren't involved in that. Um, but uh, I think that's a good group. And I would think that uh, I would have to vote for Quinn Snyder. I hate to be a homer, but I think I'd vote for Quinn Snyder if I had to had a vote. Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert. Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis. Rudy Gobert, another hometown. I'm going to be a favorite in Salt Lake. You are. The three listeners in Salt Lake will like it. MVP, Anthony Davis, James Harden, LeBron James. Nobody from the Jazz? (laughs) No. They're not going that far with Rudy yet. Uh, LeBron. Played all 82 games. He had his standout season and we already said that their team is not as talented as some others so I'll uh, I'll say LeBron and that which is, hurts me I was just going to say and that's coming from the the notorious Cleveland where's LeBron play next year 
wherever he wants, but I, I've made the comment that I think that he should stay in Cleveland. Um, that's that's his hometown. That's what he went back to do. Um, I think it's it's easy to leave at this point. So if he wants to one day own the Cavs or own the NBA team, um, be that guy that helps figure out a way to fix their salary troubles and and get young players that'll be better and and build the team instead of instead of leaving. There's that little murmur about him wanting to own an NBA team one day. You just you just threw that in there offhand. Do you think that's more than a murmur? No, I think that's accurate. He's already the GM of the Cavs, so why not be the owner too? The uh, the feeling is that he might choose the franchise he want. I've heard that he might choose the franchise he wants to own in this next uh, free agent signing. Does that make any sense to you? Um, it'll be interesting because that'll you know. I think we would all guess that when he changes teams, he's going to go to a team that is good. So and has a chance to win a championship, so that's going to make it a little bit harder because those owners aren't the type that want to uh, give up that success. So I would guess that if he um, then goes to a different type of te- a different team, that would be a, that would be a telltale sign of of what the goals are. Um, all right, let's uh, rookie of the year: Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell. I guess I might as well stay with Prince Salt Lake City fans and they don't have a mission. the most invalid ballad of all time. <laughs> well, possibly that could help me if I made a trip to Salt Lake down the road. That's true. Get a free meal somewhere. We might even get one from the host of this show just for coming on all the time, but if you ever would accept it, you'd get it. Uh, maybe I need to stop involving myself in, in coming and then you can just get your free meal by yourself and you'll be happier. The... I've heard Grappa's a good place. Grappa is a good place up in Park City? Yeah, that's a good place. China Toscana, good place. Walters is probably the best there is. Uh, Takashi is world class. There's even a few good restaurants. The I'm watching the playoffs. It's a different game. What you need to win in the regular season is a bit different than what you need to win in the playoffs, particularly with the amount of switching and one-on-one play and some of those things. Does... If you're drafting in the top of the lot in the top of the draft, do you draft with the eventual playoffs in mind when you're a team that's got a top five pick, so you're probably not very good the year before, or do you, or do you do it the other way and you draft the, the one that's going to the kind of type of player that helps you get to the playoffs? Um, I think Philly probably. They made a lot of mistakes, but I think Philly is kind of the model there. Like, you draft for the regular season, and you get free agents for the playoffs. Um, J.J., Bellinelli, Ilyasova, um, I mean, that's, I think, how if you're at the top of the, if you're at the top of the lottery, um, unless you're Boston, then... Uh, I think that's how you have to 
you have to do it. And then those young guys through the first, second, and third years that they're going through the playoffs, when they get there eventually, um, then they become you know, championship ready. But I don't, I don't think rookies are the ones that win playoff series for you. They can get you a long way, as Mr. Mitchell showed, but um, I think the veterans are the ones that that end up helping you win those series. When you look at this draft, and I don't know how much work you've spent on it yet, how many players do you believe are f- – let's assume, let's look at this last draft, say Jason Tatum's got to keep Billy Ben Simmons the year before, Donovan Mitchell, franchise-altering caliber players. When you look at this draft, how many franchise-altering players do you see? Um, I think we always talk about tiers. I think there's a, a tier of five probably. Um, I think you'd say eight and Doncic, Bagley, uh, Bamba, and possibly a healthy Michael Porter. But, um, you know, if you're an Orlando and you need star quality player, then you could throw a, a Trey Young in there, um, who has he can be franchise changing the way he he can play and handle the ball if if he has the right environment around him. Um, so I think there's there's kind of that group. I mean, Trey's kind of on the edge there, but uh, I'd say the that 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 four of uh, Bamba, Aiton, Doncic, and Bagley would be the guys at this point that he'd kind of stop at that tier. Do you think any of them are have separated themselves from the rest? Um, I, I think when you're looking at the best center I think you'd feel most comfortable with Aiton at this point. And I think when you're looking at the best playmaker, you'd say Doncic has separated himself. And if you're looking at a guy who can score, rebound, plays high-level activity, great motor, you know, that's Bagley. So I think those those guys kind of each at their position where you're thinking Bagley's probably a four, um, I think that they've – kind of separated themselves. I think you're in a debate on the quote point guard if you know if it's Sexton or Trey Young, who that guy is. Um and then there's always a wild card. I mean last year when teams are picking and you say, well is Donovan Mitchell a point guard or is he a two guard? Um was a two guard, you know, his last five games he in college he shot 25% from the field and 20% from three, like how good a two guard is he? And there's always that wild card or uh, that guy that gets overlooked. But I think a lot of times we dismiss the fact that situations are so important, just like with Jason Tatum. Would, would Jason Tatum have been the same player if he 
played for the Sacramento Kings this year, um, would he have had the same type of year? Would, uh, you know, you can go down the list, but as you're going through and you talk about draft bust and you say, hey, if, if this guy had played on this team at this time with this group of people, um, there's an advantage there, and there's an advantage in with Mitchell that he played with Ricky Rubio that was a great point guard, and he didn't have to handle the ball as much, but he developed that and learned from him as the year went on. And so I think if if you looked at it before the year and if Hayward was back, what's his uh, number of shots that he gets in the game and what's – in Mitchell and what's he, how's he impact the game? And if you change it to Boston and you say if Kyrie is healthy all year and Hayward is healthy, how many shots does Jason Tatum get? Um, and so his role and his comfortability changes. If you plug in Aaron Gordon at a different team when he came out, you know, does he have a different start to his career? So I think. It's really uh, situational based on how successful guys are. Boston's going to be really fascinating next year when they're all healthy. Because they're either going to be great or there's going to be a tremendous battle for possessions. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Well, Scout, we appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Good insight. I don't think I stumped you today. I just made you call me a CPA. I'm sorry. I didn't have enough numbers to to hang with you. Well, I mean, you use numbers to cover up lack of knowledge or understanding. That's all I'm doing. And, I, and I've gotten good at that fake job right there. Uh, broadcaster of the year. Uh, I don't know if they – I don't think they give that one out. Um, but it would be Doris Burke because she wins all – broadcasting, and I would really like it if ESPN would trade her to TNT during the playoffs. I think that would be a major upgrade for all of our lives. It's really hard to watch the Western Conference Finals with games on mute. uh, A, uh, yes. Broadcasters shouldn't comment on other broadcasters. Yes. Thank you, Scout. I, I, I at least know for all of their debatable things that may have been said that the last thing that you said on the show was incredibly accurate. Amen.